course, a triumphant return and with plenty of lessons learned in the intervening 24 years. An undeniably shorter schedule, but no live pigeon shooting or ballooning. We're all set up for peaceful, well-organized and surely profitable games. Welcome to Paris 1924. Yes, what a difference 24 years makes, Ruth. We no longer swim down the River Seine. We've got an actual swimming pool. We're not throwing discus into the trees. We've got a 60,000 capacity stadium. Surely this is like the best games ever. Surely it is, isn't it? Now, I said it was shorter games. The sh- It's listed as being, what, 14 days long? Mm. It wasn't really. Oh, why? Well, they had, they had rugby in May. Oh, yes. Two months before the games began. Is there any reason why? Yeah, basically the French really, really, really wanted to win. And they thought that if they had it in May, this is this what I this what has been reported um, after the fact, that they thought that um, if they had it in May, all of their players would be just coming out of the season and be ready to just absolutely hammer the Americans who had beat them in Antwerp four years previously. Okay, so this was kind of like a revenge match. Exactly. They were so desperate to win it that they they couldn't wait for the Olympics. They put all focus on that rugby tournament. Okay. Yeah, now, 1924 was the last occasion for rugby in any form to appear on an Olympic schedule until Rugby Sevens made its triumphant return in 2016. There were a couple of exhibition matches in 1936. In fact, I'm pretty sure those 1936 exhibition matches had more uh, participating nations in it than any of the uh, Olympic uh, rugby uh, events officially. Um, (laughs) Didn't we have in the previous Paris Olympics the case where the British team like came over just for the day to play and they didn't even realize they were competing in the Olympics? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of like a, a recurring theme of 1900. <laughs> um, and also, in 1928, Luxembourg won gold in art for a drawing by Jean Jacobi of a, a rugby game. So that it, it, it kind of made an appearance um, in 1928, a bit. I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in 1924, yeah, there was only three nations entered. There was the hosts, France, uh, Romania, and then obviously, as we said, the USA. Great Britain had been invited, but it just seems like they couldn't really be bothered because they weren't prepared to field a combined team. Uh, if you remember from 1908, we had, you know, all of the quote-unquote home nations of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Um, but they just they just didn't particularly want to field a combined team for this game. But they also invited South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. They decided the trip was too long, which especially given that it wasn't taking place at the same time as the rest of the Olympics, you can kind of understand. It took place over three consecutive Sundays. So it wasn't even, you know... A, a little, you know, taster a few months before it. But it was spread out over three Sundays. And as I said, France really, really wanted this gold medal. And they really, really, really wanted to beat the Americans. 
it didn't turn out well, Chris. There might be... Oh, no. <laughs> There might be a... What, the Americans won again? It's, that's not even it, Chris. Just the entire event was a shambles. And it, there might, it might be the reason why there hasn't been rugby or there wasn't rugby for uh, eight decades. Um, or nearly, yeah, yeah, more than eight decades. Nine, in Nine, fact. exactly. <laughs> the, the Americans took a slow boat to England. Uh, where they played a number of warm-up matches and then onwards to France. When they arrived at Boulogne, many of the team were horrifically seasick, like properly just vomiting overboard and they were desperate to get onto dry land. But there was a bit of a problem. They had no visas and no one told customs they were arriving. Um, Norman Cleveland, who was one of the Americans on the team, whose oral history was recorded decades later by UCLA Berkeley, recalled... So they said, we couldn't get off the boat. We didn't have any visas. So we said, that's what you think. You watch us, see us as we get off this boat. We charged through the gendarmes and through the barriers. I mean, that's one way. (laughs) (laughs) It's one way of getting things done. So what? They went like rugby scrum style. (laughs) Just uh, combined forces uh, forcing their way onto, well, this is into the UK or into France? This is in France. So this is this is after they they'd had a relatively successful mini tour of um England. They this is in France. Um eventually things were sorted out, but of course the French newspapers got hold of the uh situation and reported that the Americans had started a riot. Which I mean they kind of half did. I mean they, they did storm the police. Um the anti-American sentiment was already pretty high, but the players now reported being spat and hissed at as they walked the streets of Paris. Uh, they even got thrown out of their hotel and re- were re- had to be rehoused in the athletes' village. I assume it was a completed athletes' village, but then it was two months before the actual event, so it may not have been. I'm not sure. So France had beaten Romania 59-3 the previous Sunday. The next, the USA beat the Romanians 37-0. There was a huge amount of bad feeling between the French and the Americans, but things just got worse and worse. The Americans wanted to film their match against Romania. The French protested because they had already sold the exclusive filming rights. On this particular issue, I'm actually on the side of the French. I mean, they had just sold the exclusive filming rights, so, you know... Sorry. I, I'm, I can't believe there were exclusive filming rights for the 1924 <laughs> Olympics. <laughs> that is, well. I have got, I've heard this on no fewer than two sources, Chris. So like, it must be true. Um, <laughs> there was also an issue, Chris, with the training grounds. Basically, the French had rescinded all invitations to the Americans to train in any of the local clubs. So they were forced to play in parks. And at one of the training sessions, um, despite having an allocated French guard for their changing room, some of their kit and $4,000 was stolen. Oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to victim blame here. But why the hell do they have $4,000 in their changing room? Like give that to the American ambassador and like just dip into it when you need it. Don't bring it into the changing rooms. I mean, again, I'm not victim blaming, but you know. Just, just, it seems like that could have been, it seems like that could have been avoided. Their kish, that's, that's just mean. You can't steal people's kish. Anyway, we get to the final match. France versus USA. One of the interesting things was that the USA demanded that the final would be 90 minutes long as opposed to the standard 80 minutes. 
um, they said they wanted to demonstrate their superior strength in cinema. And actually, they they allowed it. <laughs> they, they decided, yeah, fine, we'll have a 90-minute match. The odds were five to one for a French victory. And obviously, not all of their money was stolen because reportedly a number of American players bet heavily on themselves to win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Norman Cleveland mentions someone um I now I think this was a fan but who put down $5000 on a team USA victory 5000 okay. Attendance was around 40000 and in fairness to the French organizers they knew it was going to be an absolute bloodbath so they erected fencing around the pitch This didn't prevent all the bottles and other projectiles being thrown at the opposition, but it would at least hamper attempts of fans evading the pitch and physically assaulting the Americans somewhat. In the words of Norman Cleveland, this is from his oral history. The American cruiser Pittsburgh was in one of the French ports and the crew was planning to visit Paris and be our supporters. Well, someone had enough sense to cancel that. If a gang of US sailors had been at the game, the consequences would have been horrible. It was said to be the worst riot in Olympic history without any sailors. But anyway, the French came to the Columbus Stadium, which was jam-packed, absolutely confident they were going to wipe us off the field. We really had our dander up. A lot of things we knew about by playing American football, the French were yet to learn. Being the favourite, the French players were not at all happy with the crowd and probably would rather not to play the game. Oh, we gave them a waxing. The biggest riot in the history of the Olympic Games took place. Fortunately, such a possibility had been anticipated and they had a big barrier fence that kept the crowds off the field. But they started beating up Americans in the stands. Interviewer. This was after the game? Cleveland. No, this was during the game. The only way they could get the injured Americans into an ambulance was to bring them onto the field. So they were laying them out on the field, waiting for the ambulances to come. We thought that some were dead and we thought that it was only a matter of time before we would be dead also. But anyway, we won 17 to 3. <laughs> so they quite literally played for their lives with the uh, the way they yeah, were approaching yeah. the game. He also says in it at one point um, they saw a band playing in the stands, but they couldn't hear them because there was so much, there was so much rioting going on. And then they realised it was because they were playing the anthem and the uh, flag was being hoisted up. Um, They were escorted off the pitch by police after their victory. Wow. It's all a bit of fun, Chris. It's all a bit of fun. That is incredible. And a real blow for the French pride, particularly because I think you mentioned there that uh, the... Americans, for the most part, were more like American football players who just uh, tried their hand at rugby. I've read that too, but the, the, there was definitely, I think, seven of the squad had been in the 1920 mm. winning team. Um, but then certainly there was uh, then bulked up by um, American footballers. Well, to be but, yeah. to be fair, I guess in the 1920s, the, the differences in the sport might not have been that great because American football did come from rugby uh originally as far as i'm aware so uh maybe there were some more similarities back then uh, than there are now uh between the two sports that was one upset which went in their favor and of course they dominated the whole olympics uh, but in one particular area 
they didn't find as much joy as usual and that was in the the track and field and i think it's just has to be mentioned the chariots of fire film celebrating the lives of two sprinters from the uk at the time now before we go into the actual facts ruth what are your abiding memories of chariots of fire we were very confused about the trainer. Like, <laughs> I just my abiding memory is is of us not really knowing what was going on. Oh, with the uh, with Harold Abraham's trainer. Yeah, we thought he was going to die or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just really building up to that, and then then we came back and there he was alive, and we were like, oh, okay, that's nice. That's yeah, nice. because he wouldn't uh, in the film. He wouldn't go to. He wouldn't watch the final of the one hundred meters. Right. Yeah. It was just all very dramatic. Well, I suppose it was a film. <laughs> yes, yes, I remember that. Sam Musabini was his uh, coach and the professional coach, which in the film also caused some consternation as the um, the deans of uh, Harold Abraham's university, which was Cambridge, didn't like the fact that he had a, a real coach, a professional coach, and believed that sport was still a gentleman only pursuit. And we and we did it and we mentioned the film well, we mentioned the athletes actually. Yeah. Um in our last Olympopod with Bill Mallon. Um and we were we were wondering, was there some license taken with some of the personalities? Because some of the Americans did come off quite badly in that film. Yeah, particularly Charlie Paddock, who yeah. uh, had was the reigning 100 meter champion coming into 1924. And turns out maybe wasn't such a bad egg after all. Uh, Harold Abrahams himself was depicted as a bit of a single minded uh, win at all costs kind of guy, which his family also claim was completely fictional. Honestly and unsurprisingly, the film wasn't really factual. Uh, there were some what? some licenses being That's... taken, uh, to be honest. And look, hey, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981, and it was an excellent movie. But if that's your only reference (laughs) i thought it was an excellent movie okay okay go on in terms of sport movies it was great and uh it has some it has some scenes which uh it's no cool runnings it's no cool runnings but yeah for its time it was uh, and depicting the 1924 olympics i think it was pretty cool and so in the film itself eric little who i think was the the great hero of the entire thing he in the film only realizes that the 100 meter heats will be held on a Sunday. And uh, because he is a devout Christian, uh, deeply religious, that he would not compete on Sunday because that was the Sabbath. And decided that he would go for the 400 meters instead. In truth, he knew the schedule for an entire year before it took place. Oh my God. So not quite dramatic. So he knew, not surprisingly, that it was going to be on a Sunday. And so he had already decided that he was going to switch to the 400 meters and train for that instead, which I think was pretty remarkable as well, seeing as he uh, 100 meters was his speciality. He probably would have won it if he had competed in it. So switching up to the 400 meters uh, with his style of running as well, which was basically sprint like it's a 100 meter race and then hope that God will carry him over the next (laughs) 300 meters uh, was a risky approach. And also in the film, uh, you'll remember the other Americans in the 400 meters asked the coach, it's like, what's up with this little guy? And they're like, don't worry about him. He's going to burn out after 300 meters. Uh, turns out he didn't. He ran a world record time and won the 400. He's got an incredible story as well. He had been born in China 
to missionary parents and moved back to or the family moved back to Scotland where he grew up and became an athlete but not too long after winning that 400 meter gold he went back to China to follow in his uh, family's footsteps as a missionary and during the second world war and during the Japanese occupation of China he was interned at a war camp in uh, what's known now as Waifang it seemed like he was quite the hero within the camp as well. He really looked after people. He set up uh, daily routines for the kids to basically try and keep them safe and their minds occupied. He was known as Uncle Eric uh, among most of the people in the camp, a very fair man, and made sure that, um, or tried his best to make sure that there were no uh, cliques within the group. Everybody loved him. And unfortunately, he uh, he wrote on the day that he died to his wife, who he had sent back to Canada with his children uh, not too long before he was interned. He wrote to her saying that uh, he had suffered a nervous breakdown due to overwork. He had a brain tumor, which was inoperable. And just five months before the camp was uh, freed, he died of that brain tumor. So a very sad end for him and everyone within the camp as well ha- were pretty devastated, particularly uh, seeing as not five months later, everybody was uh, freed. And he's held up as a bit of a hero, not just in, in Scotland, but also remembered fondly in China, which is an unusual thing. There is a uh, monument for him in Waifang. Uh, which is not the done thing to have a monument dedicated towards a foreigner, so to speak. So very interesting and rounded man. Obviously, you said the Americans didn't quite perform to their usual standards on the track and field. But um, one nation that did really well was Finland. Yeah, while the UK managed to beat the US in the sprints. It was the Finns who were the dominant people in the middle and long distance running. And we spoke about Pavel Nurmi in the previous podcast with Bill Mallon as he had competed in 1920. Well, 1924 was when he really reached his peak and he achieved some incredible things. He won five medals in the space of six days. Oof. And that would be impressive in any type of athletic setting or Olympic setting. But the fact that he was a middle and long distance runner, I think that is pretty insane. And so Pavel Nurmi, uh, we'll look at a bit more into his uh, story than we did in 1920. He had broken 11 world records by at this point. He always carried his own stopwatch with him in races. <laughs> was that in case um, he, he didn't believe uh, the referees? not quite uh maybe that's a good reason as well but he basically he was uh very devoted to uh pacing Mm. and so he would always glance at it to make sure that he was keeping his pace and that he was keeping to the tactics that he'd set out so he was quite ahead of his time at this point it wasn't just a case of like just going and running and then hoping that uh you get there without collapsing He actually had pacing in mind. He knew what he wanted, which splits he wanted to run. And in 1924, that was very much ahead of his time. So he was uh, good tactically. He was also a machine as well. I think we mentioned in the previous podcast about him running 
uh, 30 kilometers with the full <laughs> military gear while it was actually meant to be a march. An insanely good athlete. And for some reason, Finland didn't allow him to enter the 10,000 meters at these games, which really pissed him off. So he decided to run it alone on the track separately, just like so he would do it. And he, with his own stopwatch, I guess, uh, timed himself and he managed to actually run quicker than the winner of the actual race. <laughs> and, and he would and he would go on, I think, to guess that title um, in the next Olympics, wouldn't he? Yeah. So he, t- despite his in- insane schedule, uh, not satisfied with not being allowed to enter the 10,000 meters, he decided to run it anyway. And he, what he did run in competitive action in Paris was the 1,500 meters, which he won, the 5,000 meters, and there was only an hour between the two of those races. Ah. <laughs> why, why would you even stop? You know, so, just keep, just keep, just keep running. So, well, that's pretty much what he did. And he actually, he knew this was coming. And so he prepared by doing the exact same thing in Helsinki three weeks previous to it, uh, leaving an hour between the two runs. And he broke the world records in both <laughs> in his preparation run. <laughs> Which is insane. He also won the individual cross country, uh, winning by one and a half minutes, an event which was then scrapped from the games afterwards because there were so many runners collapsing in the actual (laughs) cross country. It was such a disaster for so many runners. He ended up just uh, winning it by a minute and a half. The uh, Mirror de Sport, is quoted as saying that Nermi goes beyond the limits of humanity. And based on what I'm talking about so far, that is very clear to see. He had, between 1922 and 1924, so in the year of the Olympics and the two years previous, he had 68 races, and he won every single one of them. I think at one point, didn't he have a streak of 121 races? He is, this 68 uh, doesn't include uh, heats, so qualification rounds, <laughs> handicap races where other people got a head start over him, <laughs> and there were uh, relays where he was in a team, and events where Nermi himself would run against an entire relay team. All of these don't count in the 68 race uh, winning streak between those three years. But you can see even the fact that there were events where Pavel Nurmi would run against entire relay teams says enough. Why would there be handicaps in a race? Like, I get it with horses, uh, but why? why? Like, <laughs> so, is, is, it just, is it just because he's too fast? So like other people had to get a head start. Like what's what's the reasoning behind it? Yeah, uh, that that is, I think it's still fairly, I wouldn't say commonplace, but still exists in uh, kind of regional and, and smaller races around the world where, yes, you would see people based on their personal best and or their apparent ability. And they would be the lower people would get a head start, basically. So, like, if I was running in those races, like, I'd be, like, 20 metres from the finishing line. And then, <laughs> and then like, we just start there. <laughs> Maybe if it was a 400-metre run, yes. Uh, I'm not so sure about the 1,500. Okay. But, yeah, I, I, there's a great, uh, great video I saw <laughs> not so long ago of Kathy Freeman, 
who won the 400 meters in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, where she was running in a handicap race. And basically, I think it was in Australia, and she managed to win it despite being given a ridiculously uh, poor uh, beginning uh, in comparison to the other runners. So that, um, that's the idea behind it. But I've never seen one live myself. Uh, to be honest. So yeah, Pavel Nurmi, uh, besides winning those three individual events, also won the team in the cross country. And um, what else did he win? Five medals in six days. Why is the fifth medal, Ruth? (laughs) He won 1,500, 500 individual cross country, team cross country and 3,000 meter team. Ah, the 3,000 meter team. Yes, that was the fifth one. So yeah, he and that was, uh, was just off the top of my head. That was, yeah, good uh, good thinking there. Really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also from Finland, we had Villa Ritola, who won the 10,000 and the 3,000 meter steeplechase while finishing second to Nurmi in the 5,000 and the cross country. Finishing and- second. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, Sorry. in this case. Oh, hell. Sinky. Finishing top <laughs> Albin Steinrus won the marathon and as we mentioned briefly the Finnish team with both Nurmi and Ritola won the 3000 meters and the cross country team events so the Finnish absolutely smashed it in middle and long distance and all I think we spoke about it briefly with Bill as well all inspired by Kola Minen and uh, his exploits a couple of Olympics ago. So Finland's still going very, very strong at this point. Yeah, and as Bill said in the last Olympic party, he said that they kind of, they didn't really ever get that heyday on track again. Talking of which, Ireland made its first appearance at these Olympic Games as a, uh, in, as a, it's a state in its own right, the Irish Free State. And now, suddenly we became shit. <laughs> now we get shit at sports. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we won a grand total of zero medals at this event. There was the art, Ruth. The art competitions. Okay, there was the art. Yeah, there was the art. I, I, t- I take that back. I take that back. Uh, we, we did excellently at this Olympic Games. How many, how many medals did we win? Uh, two medals in the art. So two. there was a silver medal for Jack Butler Yates for his painting of uh, swimming, natation. I've seen it in the National Gallery of Ireland. National Gallery, yeah. Yeah, um, now has the title The Liffey Swim. At the time, just uh, swimming. And there was a bronze for Oliver St. John Gogarty, another famous name in Ireland, uh, in the literature competition. And that was for the Ode pour le jeu de Talton which was about the uh, Tolchin Games, which was revived earlier that year. Which makes me think maybe there's a reason why Ireland were so terrible at these Olympics, because all of the best athletes might have just focused on the Tolchin Games that year. Mm. Then I looked into the results of the Tolchin Games and saw that actually there were a few foreign athletes competing who then went on to compete in the Olympics. So there was no excuse, uh, unfortunately. No excuse. Two Olympopods ago, um, you said maybe we would bring in a regular feature where I report on things um, that I find on Wikipedia that seem a bit dubious. Um, if, if you remember, um, a late Renaissance painter um, made it onto the Italian, uh, 
I, I believe it was gymnastics team. Um, during um, the French games, it was it was the war game. Inter-Allied. Inter-Allied games. It was the Inter-Allied games. Anyway, I was looking up Irish athletes at this event and I found Walter Ireland, a tennis player. Okay. Um, and it says, it's a very short article, Walter Ireland, 25th of April, 1882, set to 2nd of November, 1932, was a Romanian tennis player. <laughs> He competed in the men's singles and doubles events in the 1924 Summer Games. Personal information. Nationality. Romanian. Born 25th of April, 1882, Rathmines, Ireland. Died 2nd of November, 1932, 8.50, Liverpool, England. And this is a um, Romanian tennis stub. You can also find him under a list of Romanian male tennis players. What? So there you go. Walter Ireland of Romania. <laughs> this is uh, this episode's uh, Wikipedia find <laughs> of new facts. We're definitely keeping this as a feature. <laughs> nice. Okay, Walter Ireland from Romania. I uh, just want to stick to the art competition uh, for a bit longer because we have a callback to Alfred Hayos. Remember him? I remember him well. It's Hungarian swimmer. Hungarian swimmer who actually eighteen ninety six wasn't he? All the way back, yeah. and he was only he was only eighteen or nineteen at the time, and he had to. Um, the water was so cold, he had to uh, grease himself up before taking part. Um, he took a clean sweep. Yes, yeah, so he he swapped his greasing for architecture uh, by nineteen twenty four, and he and a fellow Hungarian. Desjur Lauber got a silver medal in the architecture competition. And as I mentioned back then, they may have got a silver, but there was no gold medal awarded in this one. So they were the best architects, but they did not do enough, it seems, uh, to be awarded a gold medal. When you say that they didn't do enough, do you mean they weren't French? Potentially. It's not the only case where there was no gold medal awarded. And it actually was pretty extreme in the music category, where there were seven composers who took part and no medals were awarded. (laughs) So nobody was good enough to get any medals. How demoralizing. (laughs) How demoralizing. And I don't know if this says more about the quality of the competition or the judging, because they got people who I guess were not so... Uh, heavily involved in sport at the time to do the judging and maybe they didn't really understand the concept uh, that there has to be a first second and third place (laughs) and particularly in the music one they were saying none of these boys or girls deserve an award so no medals given in the art competition on reflection maybe it's understandable why the ioc did not accept that the art competitions uh, count as medals these days yeah, and but like also in fairness, we haven't heard these pieces. Maybe there's a reason, you know. <laughs> Maybe they were really bad. Last Olympopod, Bill Mallon threw out boxing. Mm. He cited the violence, but also because he's a he's a medical doctor, just the sheer and potentially irreversible damage that it causes to athletes. But no such concerns in 1924. And now, as I've already said, there was a bit of a crowd issue 
at certain events. Um, we saw that in the rugby. Also with the boxing there, Chris. Oh. There was a, bit, there was a couple of issues. Uh, we had a matchup between the local f- uh, favourite, Roger Bruce, and the Englishman, Harry Mallon. Who do you think the uh, crowd were up for? I would go for Bruce. Yeah, it was Bruce, yeah. He had a bit of a reputation, um, a deserved reputation, for biting his opponents, which he did in this matchup as well as in previous matchups. He was awarded the win against Malin, even after Malin showed the visible bite marks on his chest (laughs) to the referees. Kinky. Bruce's supporters seem to have claimed that he simply had a very unusual but involuntary tendency to snap his jaw whenever he threw a punch. And that's why he kept on biting people. So, you know, Malin's chest essentially just got in the way of Bruce's jaw as Bruce was trying to deliver a punch. So that caused his jaw to snap down on Bruce's or on Malin's chest. And uh, that hmm. was and that was why that was what caused it. It went to a- appeal, and amazingly, the judges determined that it was a case of accidental repeated chest biting. <laughs> um, however, unfortunately for Bruce, um, who, as I've said, was not at fault, you know, he 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 was exonerated. He was disqualified, even for this accidental. Oh, okay, good chest biting. Good, good, good. And um, he burst into tears. His supporters uh, lifted him up on their shoulders and brought him around the velodrome. Uh, And the French crowds all just took this very calmly and level-headedly. Oh, God. Yeah, but it wasn't. They didn't. didn't. (laughs) (laughs) A heavily guarded Malin managed to win his next two matchups and he won gold, which was retaining the gold after Antwerp. Um, After this match, he did retire from boxing, though. And this very much set the scene for the rest of the boxing schedule with several more riots breaking out during the course of the week. It has to be said, not all were instigated by the French. The Italians were involved at one point. Um, <laughs> the Turkish fans. So The, the French are not enjoying a great Olympics. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the English media in general were not impressed and uh, they called for the Olympic Games to be disbanded. Not the first time we've heard that uh, in this. Not the first pod. time. I'm I'm really looking forward to Paris night or 2024. <laughs> Let's bring back some of the spirit of 1900 and uh, 24. <laughs> I find French fans in sport quite good these days. I'm not sure the yeah, 100 years ago or 96 years ago. I'm not sure what they were up to. Um, now, I, maybe I, maybe uh, someone intervened. Uh, speaking of. Of these French fans, I've heard and read contrasting reports about their behavior uh, in the swimming pool or surrounding the swimming pool. And there was one uh, rivalry in particular which caught the imagination between Duke Kahanamoku and Johnny Weissmuller, from, both from uh, representing the USA. Duke Kahanamoku was from Hawaii. Johnny Weissmuller is from Europe. I think he's like uh, originally from somewhere in the Romania-Hungary region, which was all a bit of a mess back in the day. Uh, His original name was uh, Janos Weissmuller. Anyway, that's not important. What is important is that uh, it was a rivalry that started in properly in the pool in 1924. And so uh, Johnny Weissmuller 
was the rising star of swimming in the US and in the world as well. He was the first man to break the one minute barrier in the 100 meter freestyle two years previous in 1922. He really was the young gun in this one, while Duke was the experienced veteran king of the pool. And Kahanamoku had uh, actually moved to California in 1922, not really thinking about swimming. He actually moved there on the promise of becoming a Hollywood star, something which never happened. And he had a couple of cracks at it, but the first time around in 1922 never happened for him. So he switched his focus back to swimming, preparing for 1924. And uh, so Johnny Weissmuller, he and uh, another swimmer who was also a diver, Stubby Kruger, they would actually perform comedy diving routines in the pool (laughs) between events. So in this case, the crowd were supposed to absolutely love it and like really lapped it all up as these two guys were uh, hopping around the pool and just making making fun of themselves and managed to build up the anticipation for his races. In other accounts, in other accounts, it claims that the Parisians hated him. So I don't know. (laughs) It's it's like it's very it's it's very like black and white here it's like love him for his diving routine his comedy diving routines or just hate him because i don't know because he's american and young and talented anyway so uh weissmuller and uh kahanamoku faced off in the 100 meter freestyle and in the final johnny won the race in 59 seconds flat. So he had beaten that one minute barrier again and finished one and a half seconds ahead of Duke, who was 34 at the time. So he was uh, pushing it on a bit, particularly for a swimmer, but did still did very well to get the silver medal while Duke's younger brother, Sam, won bronze. So two Kahanamoku's winning medals in that one, but neither could beat Johnny Weissmuller. Johnny Weissmuller went on to become Tarzan. What? Yes, he is Tarzan. He uh, So he is a man who did have a successful career on the silver screen. When he went back, he went to Hollywood and he was cast as Tarzan. I was actually thinking when you said his name and I, I looked up a picture and he is a bit of all right. So, you know. A bit of all right, yeah. <laughs> I can see. I see. Yeah. So, yeah, he um, appeared in 12 films over the course of 17 years. So he was like a, a proper long-standing star, um, a franchise actor. And... He was a pretty good swimmer as well. They incorporated swimming into the films because of who he was. It wasn't originally part of the whole Tarzan thing, but they uh, got some nice underwater shots of him swimming. Besides winning that 100-meter freestyle, he also won the 400-meter freestyle in Paris, and he was a member of the U.S. water polo team, which won bronze, and a part of the 4 by 200 meter relay team, which won gold. So he won gold in the pool three times, a bronze in the pool uh, for water polo, which, yes, is also in a pool, <laughs> and uh, would go on to win two more golds in 1928. So, yeah, he um, he's pretty incredible. And there's uh, a very interesting story that uh, I think was told by Weissmuller's son, in a book he wrote called Tarzan, My Father. And in which in 1958, so we're jumping ahead a few decades here, 
Uh, during the Cuban Revolution, uh, Weissmuller was playing golf in Cuba. As you would. Great time to be doing it. And uh, it was surrounded by a bunch of rebel soldiers. Weissmuller was unable to communicate who he was until he got out of the golf cart and did his trademark Tarzan yell. He couldn't speak to them, so he did the Tarzan yell, uh, which is an interesting approach. You know, uh, if someone does that to you, um, it could be a threatening thing. could be an intimidation tactic uh, for soldiers to take as an opportunity to to shoot. Um, Anyway, the soldiers didn't do that. They actually recognized the yell and shouted, Es Tarzan, Es Tarzan, de la jungla. (laughs) So... uh, It saved his ass, it seems. So not only was he not kidnapped... But the guerrilla soldiers gave him an escort to his hotel. <laughs> the guerrilla soldiers liked it. Very good. Yeah. As for Duke Kahanamoku, he's got an incredibly interesting story as well. He's a native Hawaiian who uh, made his name in swimming, but he was also the one to popularize the ancient Hawaiian sport of surfing. Mm-hmm. So he really used his platform to push surfing afterwards. He... Uh, was also a, the sheriff of Honolulu for 29 years. He did try his luck at acting again afterwards, but yeah, he featured as uh, kind of a bit part or extra in a number of films, never made it, and was also a bit of a beach volleyball player as well. He was a substitute in the U.S. water polo team at the 1932 Summer Olympics. So eight years later, at the age of 42, he was still uh, competing as an athlete. And yeah, as I mentioned before, he was like the mo- the father of modern surfing. He asked for it to be included in 1920. It was not accepted, but wonderfully, 100 years later, or 101 years later, it was due to be a sport in Tokyo this year, and it will be next year. Um, the next year, in 1925, he... Uh, in California, he managed to save um, quite a number of sailors uh, whose boat had capsized um, because he had his surfboards and he went and made repeated trips, uh, rescuing quite a number of them. Um, Now, I think half of the crew did die, unfortunately, but it, it was very much said that had he not been there and then two other surfers, that the tragedy would have been much worse. Yeah, he was a hero. He was a hero. Yeah. Hero with a surfboard. And do you know, like those those surfboards back in the day, um, and I'm sure um you can still find them uh in Hawaii, they're they were very, very impressive. <laughs> they're so huge. They are so huge. I saw a video of uh Johnny Weissmuller trying to surf because the two of them became quite good friends afterwards. And Weissmuller actually went over to uh, to try surfing a few times. Uh, Duke taught him how to do it. And yeah, it's just like, it's a very huge plank that they're trying to surf on. So yeah, if you could do it back then, well, if you can do it now, it's still very impressive. And, and another um, supporter of surfing was the writer Agatha Christie. And I imagine she was quite a bit shorter uh, than Duke. And there's some fantastic photos of her uh, because like she got really into surfing. Oh. Like she she was very good at it. Um, and there are some great photos of her with these giant planks. 
Okay, we have to put that up on uh, on social media after after we do this. Nice. Uh, speaking of women, Ruth, <laughs> we haven't spoken about any women yet. You're a woman. Agatha Christie's a woman. And look, there were. Uh, let, let's let's bring out the women because there was a whole one hundred and thirty five female athletes in nineteen twenty four, which is more than double than uh, the previous one. Uh, still yeah. not a lot. But no, still not a lot. But do you know what's great? This is the last Olympic Games that's going to be under the control of Pierre de Coubertin, mm, yes, who does not like the ladies. He does not like the ladies. Um, well, he, he has no issue with the ladies, but he doesn't like the ladies participating in sport. Yeah. Or um, does he even like them watching? Is he okay with that? Oh yes. Oh, he uh, a f- female applause is the ultimate reward. That's uh, for okay. the the Olympians. You know, the, he wants his men competing, and he wants his women there clapping them on for uh, remarkable achievements in the field of sport. But um, well, as you uh, can imagine, there is uh, a growing push. Uh, to include more female athletes. And this was a very interesting time for this as well. And before I get into the athletes who actually did compete in 1924, I want to bring up a remarkable woman called Alice Millier. I love this woman. (laughs) She is amazing. She's from Nantes, or she was from Nantes in France. And she was the president of Femina, and the FSFI, two uh, female sporting bodies based in France. And she made a huge push to basically see international women's sporting events and to get women competing in a similar way to men. And so, yeah, the FSFI, which stands for La Fédération Sportive Féminine Internationale, was uh, the body that decided to hold a women's Olympic Games. Which we will have to one day uh, do a uh, mini pod on. Absolutely. Yeah, this deserves a whole episode on its own, the women's Olympic Games. And uh, the idea that it would include uh, a number of sports uh, rather than the restricted number allowed in the uh, Olympic Games, which uh, was helmed by Pierre de Coubertin until 1924, She started negotiations in 1919 with the IOC and the IAAF, the Athletics Federation, to include women's track and field events, because that's one in particular where uh, there's a big hole, I think, uh, in women's representation. Uh, There's a lot of holes, but a track and field, which already at this point was the, uh, the headline event of the Olympic Games, still no women competing in it. So she'd uh, started negotiations to get them included by this Games 1924. It was refused, so she decided herself to organize the Women's Olympiad in 1921, which was in Monte Carlo. Uh, and that was a track and field uh, focused event. There were 10 events, uh, mostly in running, uh, jumping, and the throwing events. Um, also held exhibition events in basketball, gymnastics push ball which i'm not really sure what that is and rhythmic gymnastics and it was held on the pigeon shooting fields in the gardens of the monte carlo casino so Ruth, you said there was no pigeon shooting yeah. there is there were pigeon shooting fields <laughs> I in lied. this podcast yes yeah but uh, what i what i absolutely love about all of this though is 
because she called it the Women's Olympics, the IOC got really angry at this because they were like, you can't call it the Olympics, we're the Olympics. So she's like, okay, we will change our name, but then you have to put in 10 extra women's events in the 1928 Olympics. And it worked. It they worked. Got, they, got, they got 10 extra sports included in 1928. Yes, she is a superstar uh, in this time. And it wasn't just that one event in Monte Carlo in 21. They had uh, further editions in 1922, uh, 1923. And then they had one in 24 as well, which was at Stamford Bridge in London. They also held the Women's Olympic Games. So there was the Women's Olympiad and there was the Women's Olympic Games, which um, was uh, an event held every four years. The first one was in Paris in 1922. So two years before where we are now with this uh, podcast. They had one in 1926 as well in Gothenburg. And then 1930 in Prague and London 1934, which was the last one. And I, by that point, she had fallen quite ill as well. And I, I think got a bit tired of the, the battle up the hill for women's sport. The thing was, she, she had essentially said that after 1934 that either it would have to be fully integrated into the Olympics, all women's sport, or else the Olympics would have to stop holding any women's events so either all of them or none of them and eventually that's that's how women got to be yeah. much more represent much better representation at the olympic games and um, she said in in an interview around that time uh, she said women's sports of all kinds are handicapped in my country by the lack of playing space as we have no vote we uh, cannot make our needs publicly felt or f- bring pressure to bear in the right quarters. I always tell my girls that the vote is one of the things that will have to work for it if France is to keep its place with the other nations in the realm of feminine sport. I can't believe that I never heard of this woman before researching this. She is insanely important at this time and had such an impact. It's really phenomenal. What a woman. Had you heard of her before? No. I had not. To my shame. To my shame, in fairness. But she also she also assembled the first um internationally recognized women's football tournament. Like she was she really turned her hand at a lot of different sports. Um but yeah, she yeah, she ha- she set up women's football. Um she was herself, I think, a swimmer and a hockey player. And a rower. She was a great woman altogether. In her honor, let's uh enjoy some of the feats of women who did compete in 1924 and you know what people did love seeing women do ruth um diving close swimming Swimming. Uh, okay okay. well both i think all water events they enjoyed in the swimming side there were two in particular i want to talk about one of them was gertrude edderly who had won two bronzes and one relay gold at the games which for her was a huge disappointment she said that the failure to win uh, all three goals was like the biggest disappointment in her career. That's how much of a, a, a superstar she was at the time. Shortly after that, though, she managed to uh, do some remarkable things. She turned pro in 1925, which meant the end of her Olympic career. But then a year later, she became the first woman to swim the English Channel, which was a big deal at the time i think only six people had done it beforehand and she first attempted it 
in 25, so a year before she managed it, uh, training with a guy called Yabez Wolf, who, and this is an interesting choice because he tried to do it 22 times and failed every single time. So why do you go for the guy who doesn't know how to do it to help you uh, manage it? Uh, he continually tried to slow her pace while they were training, saying that she could never manage to do it if she kept up this kind of pace, that she would burn out. And uh, so training wasn't going so well. And when they actually tried it for the first time in August 1925, she was disqualified when the coach Wolf ordered another swimmer who was keeping her company in the water to uh, to recover her because he thought that she was drowning. Uh, so he decided that uh, the other swimmer should help. And once that other swimmer had touched her, she was disqualified. She claimed that she was not drowning, but she was just resting. <laughs> she was resting by floating face down in the water. <laughs> I don't know. That's like that's like the usual thing when somebody says, I wasn't sleeping. I was just resting my eyes. It's like, I'm not drowning. I'm just floating face down in the water. Maybe you can do that. Um, I'm not that good a swimmer to be able to claim that that's possible in the channel so let's take her word for it um so she really wasn't happy and a lot of people actually thought that uh wolf was trying to sabotage her event uh, or her attempt uh, that he had previously claimed that women were not capable of doing it and uh, it was speculated that he tried on purpose to uh ruin her uh, didn't want her to succeed because as i mentioned before he did not succeed in 22 attempts and uh, so I, I misspoke before i said six people had done it five men had been managed managed to do it before she did she was the sixth and the record time for it was 16 hours 33 minutes in her second attempt 16 hours that's one hell of a swim huh <laughs> yeah like you know i i do i do find these feats incredible and all but I, I honestly couldn't be honest like <laughs> like I know I know I couldn't I know I couldn't swim very long anyway but like I just it, it just yeah I'm not I, I am comfortable yeah. in owing I will never swim for 16 hours I'm okay with yeah. that um anyway a year later she tried it again <laughs> sorry just 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 no, put that in, right. in case anyone in case anyone gets in touch and like is like here Ruth will you go swim for 16 hours the answer is would no you, I'm just putting it right there would now. you cycle for 16 hours um I do really like my bike Chris I really like my bike and I bought some very practical um cycling pants recently so maybe maybe you maybe maybe okay. maybe I could do it so she did try it a year later and well ruth she didn't need to swim for 16 and a half hours because she smashed the record 14 Woo! hours 14 hours 34 minutes so she beat it ah, yeah i could do that That's beat fine. it by a good one hour 59 minutes and once she got out of the water uh, the first person to greet her was a british immigration officer who requested to see her passport <sighs> So that that, that uh, reception was not so wonderful. However, when she did go back to the US, uh, she was treated to a ticker tape parade in Manhattan for her achievement. That's how incredible this achievement was. And t uh, over 2 million people had lined the streets to celebrate her. And so she um, made a nice career for herself after that. Um, she made personal appearances, uh, which she got paid a lot for. Uh, she played herself in a movie called Swim Girl Swim. 
And she also did a tour of the vaudeville circuit. So she had, um, yeah, despite that Olympic disappointment, she went on to achieve great things. And in particular, that, uh, that swim, smashing the record for the channel swim. There was someone who was a bit more successful at the actual Paris Olympics, though, and that was Sybil Bauer, who previous to the Games had beaten the men's world record for the 440-yard backstroke. This is another female swimmer beating a male record. And doing the rounds beforehand with claims that uh, she should actually compete against the men in Paris 1924 because she was so good. Uh, She decided, well, I'm not sure if she had a choice uh, because there was a female event for the 100-meter backstroke. And because of that, she competed in that and she won very easily. I think she won by four seconds in the 100-meter backstroke, which uh, is a... A lot of time for a short race like that. Uh, Sadly, though, Mm. Sybil Bauer uh, died of cancer just three years later at the age of just 23. So unfortunately, does not um, did not get to see her uh, go any further in her athletic career or in life, sadly. Women were allowed in the fencing as well for the first time. Yes. Do you have any stories about fencing? Absolutely none. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Absolutely none other other than them. They were allowed. It happened. It happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, there was there was no golf because if there had been golf, the ladies probably would have been allowed there. Wouldn't yes. They? Well, they were in tennis though. And we spoke about yeah. uh, Suzanne Longlen last time mm-hmm. with Bill in 1920. She did not compete at these games because she was suffering from jaundice at the time. I think that year was a bit of a blowout yeah. for her. But there was uh, another female tennis star who took over at those games and she was just 18 years of age Helen Wills from the UK and she was known for being a bit more of a a tougher and reserved uh, type of uh, athlete and personality she was all business on court and quoted as being a heartless crusher of lesser talents now that's how I like my female tennis players (laughs) so she um She'd won the women's singles and the women's doubles in 1924 in Paris. And two years later, these two huge talents would uh, face each other for the very first time and the only time, interestingly. So it was just before Longlen went professional. Helen Wills stayed amateur for her entire career. And so 20-year-old Wills took on Longlen in 1926 at the final of a tournament in Cannes. And it was known as the match of the century and still is known as the match of the century in women's tennis. It was the only time they played each other in singles. There was huge anticipation for the match. Tickets were being sold at ridiculous prices. Roofs and windows of nearby buildings were crowded with spectators, including King Gustav V of Sweden. So this was big, big news at the time. And uh, both players were seemingly quite nervous before the game and and early on. So Suzanne Langlon was drinking brandy and water at one point to calm her nerves. Great preparation. As we've seen, brandy is a a key to success in the early Olympic Games. It really is. is. I I actually mentioned this to someone recently. It's like, I'm not sure if I've ever really drunk brandy but like should i Mm. like is this what's holding me back could be there's only one way to find out ruth 
There's only one yeah, way to find like out. Maybe I just like have like a shot of brandy in the morning, yeah. and then like if if I start if I start like slugging off maybe a little bit of strychnine and see how that regime mm. works. <laughs> maybe not the strychnine though. I'll I'll report I'll report okay. back, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so uh, Longlon did win the match a six three eight six even though she was down 2-1 in the first set and 5-4 in the second set. So it was an incredibly close game. Uh, Wills, in fact, had a set point in the second set and thought she had won the point to win the set, but a linesman disagreed. Uh, and she, for the very first time, or one of the few times in her career, actually showed a bit of emotion on the court afterwards. She got very angry with that linesman. So close was the match and so precarious was Longlon's invincibility surrounding her in tennis that her father advised her that she would lose the next match against Wills if they ever met again. And so Longlon avoided her for the rest of her career. <laughs> and so for the uh, remainder of that spring tour around Europe, Wills didn't get a, t- a second chance to meet her. She had an emergency appendectomy during the 1926 French Championship, uh, which meant that she couldn't face her when they were due to, uh, to meet in the second round. Later that year, Longlon turned professional. And uh, Wills, though, she went on to win the women's singles at Wimbledon eight times, the US Open seven times, and the French Open four times. So she became the dominant figure in amateur tennis after that. tennis story and it almost has a woman in it it has a woman at the end doesn't it okay <laughs> so you know keeping with two different things here um you might remember all the way back in 1906 our ballers we had cosmo duff gordon uh fencer who was a bit of a dick um we mentioned him then again in 1908 because he was quite he was quite involved with the um with bringing the games to London. Um, But he was also famous for having been on the first lifeboat that was launched from the Titanic. The one that had a capacity of 40, but left with only 12, including Cosmo Duff Gordon. Uh, There was an inquiry later and he was generally exonerated. It wasn't, it it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah. His, his, His reputation did suffer quite a bit after that but we have another titanic connection in this olympic games we actually have quite we actually have a few um this time with the american tennis player richard norris williams um the 21 year old richard already had a fairly successful amateur tennis uh career and he was traveling with his father charles joanne williams in first class he uh, would be remembered, as I said, a little bit more favorably than Cosmo, uh, partly, partly because of his heroism, um, but also due to the really horrific ordeal he went through. Soon, a- he was not on the first, uh, lifeboat, let's just say. Um, soon after the collision with the iceberg, as he was making his escape, he heard a fellow passenger trapped in a cabin and he proceeded to break down the door. A steward reprimanded him for this and told him he could be uh, potentially liable for a fine for damaging <laughs> for damaging the ship. Wait, what? This is as water is in the ship. I'm, not, I'm like, I mean, it's certainly after the after the collision. collision. So I don't okay. like, yeah, but um, yeah, he was wow. told um, and just got immortalized in the film. That is almost 
quite literally rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. He initially, as I said, didn't make it onto a lifeboat and both himself and his father were on the deck of the ship almost right up to the moment of its final descent. Um, At that point, they were obviously forced to jump overboard. And one of the ship's giant funnels came crashing down. Richard was missed by a few feet, but his he watched his father being crushed underneath it and oh died. Yeah, yeah. So very traumatic, but obviously he's still in the freezing cold Atlantic Ocean. And um, he was able to get himself to a partially submerged collapsible lifeboat, on which he spent several hours knee deep in freezing water. Thirty people in all managed to make it to this lifeboat, but by the time rescue arrived, all but eleven were dead. Obviously, because he had been knee deep, as I said, in freezing water, it, it resulted in really horrific injuries uh, of frostbite, and the doctors wanted to perform a double amputation. Uh, he refused. He said, "I'm a tennis player. Um, I'd rather have my legs." And he, instead, he got up out of bed every two hours to make an agonizing walk until the circulation had properly returned. Wow. I can't I can't find any information on how long this was. Like was this, you know, over a course of a few days or as I think more likely a course of like weeks and months. Like the, he just had to get up every 2 hours to make sure they didn't fall off. Oh my god. But within the year he'd won his first US tennis championship in the mixed doubles. <laughs> oh wow, what a hero. And then in 1924, or these games, he won gold. Also in the mixed doubles. I told you a woman would come into this with, uh, <laughs> with Hazel Hotchkiss Whiteman. In spite of the fact that in that gold uh, medal match, he was suffering from a sprained ankle. Ah, look, I mean, in comparison to uh, Frostbite, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> nothing. In that, wasn't he told by, I said it was nothing, but didn't he want to like quit once he sprained his ankle? And, and his partner said, look, don't worry, you just stand at the net. I'll do all the running. You just try and smash it when it comes near you. And uh, so she did the legwork in uh, the rest of that, uh, that match. And they won, huh? Yeah. Of course so it did. So it was worth it. It was worth it. Nice. Oh, I did once get a criticism from a listener who said that you said something in the introduction and then you never mentioned it again. Oh, oh dear. Listener, you know who you are. But I should mention at the start, I, I alluded to the fact that this would surely be a profitable games. Uh. It was not. <laughs> it was not. Um, I think I can't remember the exact figures, but it, it certainly lost a lot of money. Yeah, I think it was like uh, they invested something like 10 million francs into it and uh lost about five million yeah yeah but it seemed like it was a success overall like the you're talking about crowd trouble and stuff like that i mean that's a good problem to have if too many people are actually coming to the events you know it's not so bad also had some winter sports which we haven't mentioned and maybe we will not mention at all right because they're yes maybe we will not maybe we will not mention the uh the winter or the week of winter sports as i think it was known at the time in uh, chamonix mont blanc which after the fact was known as the first winter olympic games we have to keep these uh winter olympics for season two yes so so less said about just the better but well done for deciding to split it up let's have a summer let's have a winter yeah so Maybe if there is a season two for the Winter Olympics, Chamonix will be the first episode of that one. Uh, Do you have any more stories? I 
Thanks, so, Chris. Okay, I've just got one more then. Okay. Um, and so uh, on the winter feel, though, it's got nothing to do. Well, it has something to do with the Winter Olympics, but it's not really a Winter Olympic story. It has more to do with Pierre de Coubertin at the start because it was his final Olympics as the president of the IOC. And oh. I believe it was during the Winter Games. He himself personally awarded 21 gold medals to the members of the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition, including 12 British people, seven Indians, one Australian and one Nepalese. So I think this was something that Perry Coubertin wanted to do for quite a while to use the Olympics to also uh, award or reward people who had achieved amazing things in the world of sport outside the games themselves. So during the Olympiad. And so this is what he did for his final presidency. He uh, awarded these uh, 21 gold medals to a group of explorers who made the first serious attempt to climb Mount Everest. And although they did not uh, manage it, uh, their exploits were lauded all over the world and resulted in these gold medals for them. And very interestingly, 88 years later, a promise which was made by one of the expedition was finally fulfilled. This expedition, they had come within 500 meters of the summit and then failed on three attempts to reach the top. And on the last attempt, uh, an avalanche swept uh, seven Indian porters to their deaths. So after that, I think quite fairly, they decided they weren't going to try again. And in uh, in France, they were given the medals, or it was uh, given to the expedition's deputy leader, Edward Strutt. And as he was handed the medals, Strutt pledged that one of them will be placed on the summit of Everest. That's what he promised to Pierre de Coubertin. It was a promise that was never kept, unfortunately. But that's because in, in 1924... Another expedition ended with two of the climbers dead on the mountain. It happens. It happens. It clearly happens. So in May 2012, in the build-up to the London Olympics, a British climber, Kenton Cool, said that he would do it. What a great yeah, name. What a cool name. <laughs> Kenton Cool said that he would fulfill this promise. He himself was a bit of a badass climber. Sorry, still is. He's still alive. Kenton Cool. I'm so used to saying people were because we're usually looking back a hundred years ago this guy kenton cool very much still alive in the build-up to the london 2012 olympics kenton cool did manage to fulfill that promise he placed one of the medals up on the summit of everest on his 10th climb up it he's done it a couple more times since he is uh, an expert everest climber and he managed to fulfill that promise which until then was never kept so i think that's a nice uh, Nice way to end that one with a happy story. Yeah, except I'm going to add something to this. Um, like we we don't. It's rare for us to have an Olympopod where we don't start a beef. Mm. Um, so I, I at the risk of having the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition come for us, I think they should have got a silver. They didn't make it to the summit. Like, you know, if you don't, if you don't award the Hungarians um, gold in architecture, I think the people who didn't climb the mountain <laughs> should get a silver. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of beef, shall we uh, destroy the hopes and dreams of one Olympic sport today? Do you know, I was thinking about it and I feel like we've occasionally got a bit off the rails 
of late. So I was going to propose a very easy one in, one out, um, which we've discussed before, um, which I've now that we've talked to Bill, got a bit more insight into potentially what we switch it with. I'm thinking we take out football. We put in Ooh. we put in beach football. Oh. So like it's there's still something there for people. We just we we all think the beach games are so cool these days. So let's yeah, just straight in, straight out. Football out. Oh, that's tough. I mean, I experienced football in the 2012 Olympics in Wembley and it was a great occasion. And in this Olympic pod, we haven't mentioned football, which was one of the the biggest events in 1924. It was it brought in like most of the money and Uruguay won it surprisingly, kind of revealing themselves as a future football powerhouse and they were going to they'd go on to win the world cup a few years later but yeah okay football's gone and you're, you want to put in beach football <laughs> yeah i mean originally i as i said i was kind of into um or what about futsal would we prefer that I'm, I'm happy to i think the beach football community will be more appreciative than okay. the futsal community okay then welcome to the fold beach uh football and screw you most popular sport in the world <laughs> <laughs> okay, would you have won a medal in anything? In 1924? Yeah. I highly doubt it at this stage. Okay, okay. Um, I think, I, think, I, think I, I could definitely think I could try my hand at not climbing Mount Everest. Oh! <laughs> oh! What a way to finish it. I'm sorry to the distant relatives of the seven Indians who died on that mountain, on that expedition. <sighs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> What's 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 our next? I don't even know. Where are we going? Where are we going now? 1928. We're going to Amsterdam. Woohoo! And as we've already alluded to, there's going to be more ladies. Oh, lots more ladies. I think, I think now, in fairness, there's going to be something like 237 ladies. I don't think they were thinking we're going to go mad with the ladies. Yeah, but that's almost doubling it again. That's it's pretty good going. I like I also I, I do like how I very confidently said 237 i hope that is correct like that is just uh 277 close. Close, close close and uh, doesn't ireland get a medal we'll find out in a real thing <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out next time on the olympic pod <laughs>